0: that anywhere else on the planet. There are really three key drivers. One of them is technology, one of them is financing, and one of them is policy. And if you have those three things, you can make things happen. If one of those things is missing, you're not necessarily going to be running on all cylinders. In this state, we have a tremendous amount of capital that we could be using and we could been seeing. Tremendous amount of financing coming out of the state legislature. There's opportunities for private financing, for federal money to be coming in. We also have the ability to take technology from anywhere in the world. We don't necessarily have to develop technology here, although that is one of our goals in the future. And the third thing is policy, and that's what this is all about today. So, how can we strengthen our policy here in the state of Alaska to encourage more energy development? And the three speakers here today are going to be focusing on different aspects of that. The first person who will be speaking is Katie Lester with Information Insights, which is a marketing consulting firm that works all around the state. Katie's been working with nonprofits and government agencies and all kinds of folks. I guess we're working here. All kinds of folks over the last many years on energy issues. And she was actually one of the co authors of a 2008 report that came out um, talking about the Recommendations for energy efficiency policy right. back in 2008 and that, that was a, a co-report that was done with the Rocky Mountain Institute at the behest of AEA and HFC back in 2008. And then this year, uh, many of the energy efficiency stakeholders in the state got together again and looked at what has happened since 2008, which has been a tremendous amount, but looked at what we still need to do and so Coal climate and Housing Research Center is now working on an update that of that yeah. report that they worked on back in 2008 with Katie and she's going to be presenting the energy efficiency policy updates. Our second uh, presenter today is Sandra Mahler, who is one of the Deputy Directors of the Alaska Energy Authority, has just recently joined AEA and is working uh, at, uh, working with all the different uh, rural energy programs that are out there. She has a lot of experience in the private sector as well, used to work with Siri just most recently, and one of the things she's going to be talking about today is regional planning. Because we have such a huge state and there are so many geographic differences, there are also differences in the kinds of resources we have and in, in, in around the state, it's very important for regional entities to be able to plan. And so AEA is embarking on a, a pretty large effort to look at regional energy planning around the state and that's what she'll be talking about. Our last speaker today will be Sarah Fisher Goad, who you've, you've seen several times earlier in this conference already. She's the director of Alaska Energy Authority, has been working with AEA and or ADA for several years, also has a lot of private sector experience, and she's going to be talking about the uh, PCE program. And, of course, the PCE program is a program that has been around for quite some time, helps subsidize the high energy costs in rural Alaska. She's going to talk about it from a policy standpoint, which is that the, we are basically taking a stance that we are going to, as a state, support rural energy through that program. So she'll be speaking about that. We had one other speaker who was going to be here today, (coughs) uh, Senator Lisa McGuire, and she was unable to make it at the last minute. And she was going to give people a little bit of a a history of what's been going on recently with energy programs and policy, and so I'm going to go ahead and give you a very, very brief. Uh, update on what's been going on in the last few years, just so you have some context. In 2008, a bunch of stuff happened. Number one, we had a tremendous amount of money coming into the energy efficiency, weatherization rebate programs, which uh, have been housed at HFC for a long, long time, but had not been really capitalized. And so uh, in 2008, we had a 360 million dollar appropriation, combined appropriation for those two programs. And as many of you know. That has been a tremendously successful program. AHFC has just recently come out with some preliminary numbers on how those programs have been performing. And for the 17,000 plus homes that have been worked on so far since 2008, there's been about an average 30% energy savings. Now, that's combined heat and electricity. But that's a tremendous amount of savings. And of course, people are saving probably a commensurate amount of money. So those programs are really paying for themselves. Also in 2008, the legislature passed House Bill 152, which was a bill creating the Renewable Energy Grant Fund. And many of you know about this program as well. Uh, So far, the legislature, over the last three years, has appropriated $176.6 million. That has gone to over 170 projects for feasibility studies, for design work, for construction projects. And many of those projects uh, are actually represented in the room. Uh, one of the ones that we talk about a lot is the Kodiak Wind Project, for instance, which got $4 million from that, uh, from that grant fund, a $20 million total project, and now the, that utility is saving between 900,000 and a million gallons of diesel a year at, you know, two bucks a gallon or so. So that's a tremendous savings. That program is actually sunsetting in June of 2013. So a lot of people who are interested in that program are already starting to gear up on on how we will reauthorize and asked the legislature to uh, possibly amend that program to make it work even better. The Emerging Energy Technology Fund was also passed just recently. Uh, that's a separate fund, a much smaller fund that the Denali Commission has been matching appropriations from the legislature to create a special pot of money that we can use for demonstration projects for, for technologies that are not quite mature yet. And that, pro- that program is just getting off the ground. And also in 2010, uh, there were a couple of other bills that were important that have been passed. SB 220, which was an omnibus energy bill, which had uh, a lot of different things in it, including the Emerging Energy Technology Fund. But it was really an implementation bill. And then um, House Bill 306, which was a bill that was put together, actually, by a group of energy stakeholders from around the state and then introduced in uh, the House and passed the very first year that set a 50% goal for renewable electricity here in the state of Alaska by 2025, and also a goal to reduce our per capita energy use by 15% by 2020. So those are goals. And in other states, those kinds of goals have actually been mandated in what are called called renewable portfolio standards. Twenty-nine states now have mandated uh, standards for renewable electricity. And many states have mandated standards for energy efficiency, and I think that's the direction we are all moving is toward, uh, toward a situation where we're not relying on a sympathetic legislature, which we have right now, and we're not relying on a bunch of extra money, which we have right now, but we're relying on a, on a firm policy in the future that can guide us. So those three presentations today, I think, fit into what we're going to be working on in the future. And they will help build on making the energy policy uh, and programs we already have work better. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Katie. And we're going to go through these presentations one by one, about 15 or 20 minutes each. So we should have uh, plenty of time for questions at the end. We'll hold all the questions for all the presenters till the very end. So Katie Lister, thank you.
1: I'm just going to load up my thing here. So like Chris said, I'm Katie Lister, I work for Information Insights, we're a, a private consulting firm in Fairbanks Anchorage, uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage. Um, and I'm here mostly on behalf of the Cold Climate Housing Research Center, um, John Davies and Catherine Dodge, weren't able to be here and so I offer to kind of carry the water and give a little update on the policy recommendations. So. This first slide is just sort of like why energy efficiency, and and this is something that hopefully you've heard already before today at this conference, and that um, some of which Chris just said, but that what energy efficiency has that, that other resources don't have is that we can do it now. We get the same output for less input, same heat, less fuel, same light, less electricity. Efficiency relies on advancing technologies, which are becoming more and more plentiful rather than fossil fuels, which are obviously becoming depleted. Um, saving energy costs less than buying it, and um, and then the obviously the environmental benefits to energy efficiency in terms of pollution and CO2 reduction. Um, the 2008 report was uh, was sort of a not entirely comprehensive but fairly comprehensive report that looked at a whole bunch of different um, energy efficiency program and policies from around the country and around Canada and and um, and tried to figure out what would, what might work best for Alaska and what might be most palatable to um, to Alaskans. Um, the recommendations were presented in these categories, um, state leadership, funding energy efficiency, public education and outreach, baseline data, existing residential buildings, new residential construction, existing commercial buildings, new commercial construction and public buildings. There's been a lot of movement on almost all of these categories t- since 2008. I mean, we had, um, we had the sort of good fortune and unfortunate circumstance of writing this report at, at the same time that, uh, that the price of oil spiked. So we kind of delivered it and then the state coffers filled up and everybody started feeling really concerned about their household costs. And so we don't like to entirely take credit for some of the legislation that, uh, that Chris talked about. There's obviously been folks working on those initiatives in Alaska for 30 plus years. But, um, but it was good timing, it was a well-timed report. Um, I'm not gonna talk about the bills because Chris kind of already uh, stole my thunder on that one. But we'll go, <laughs> there was Senate Bill 287 which expanded the weatherization program increasing eligibility to 200% of pop- poverty and appropriating $200 million. Um, created the Home Energy Rebate Program um, which has no income qualifications. There's $100 million appropriated for that program with an additional 60 million later on and then additional funding this last year, if they think 37.5 million. Um, House Bill 306 establishing the statewide energy policy, which Chris already talked about. So then we got back together in um, recently and kind of pulled a bunch of energy stakeholders from um, around the state, many of whom are here and talked about um, where where we where we were since the 2008 report, um, where we felt like we had made progress, and where we felt like there were opportunities, sort of in the upcoming legislative session or, or or sort of in the near term, and what was the most important, and the recommendations that came to that sort of bubbled to the top after that meeting, and you know with sort of informed by some analysis and program updates, were to first um, pass a statewide energy efficiency code. Um, second, sustainably fund the weatherization and rebate programs. That's the home energy rebate program. Three, um, that there's a there's a recognition across the board that education in terms of public education and outreach, and as well as training of professionals and um, kindergarten through university courses is really important and has been something that um, that we have we have felt the lack of. But you know, folks are kind of have been working. Cons- I don't want to say scrambling, but they have been working hard to get those up and going. Um, Utility-based end-use electric, electrical efficiency programs, um, and then sort of a consideration. There's a lot of desire for a consideration of a decoupling mechanism, particularly in the rail belt, and that's something that um, there's just a lot of rumbling er, around South Central Alaska about. Um, and then five, to legislate efficiency as a priority. So I'm just going to kind of go through in a tiny bit more detail, a little bit on each of these recommendations. Um, the Statewide Energy Efficiency Code, this was the number one recommendation and this time and it was the number one recommendation last time. Um, it's needed by the Alaska Housing Finance Corporation to sort of level the playing field so that they can um, be more competitive with uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, and it is now supported by the Alaska State Home Builders Association, and that was not always the case. Um, so I think that there's a feeling that that it could be more likely to succeed now that it sort of has more widespread support. Um, there's a lot of the state that's already covered by an energy code, uh, and which is, I think, important to recognize. Anchorage, Ketchikan, Juneau, Kenai, and Fairbanks all have building codes, which include an energy component. Um, and any mortgages that are underwritten by the Alaska Housing Finance Corporation have to meet these, these standards, and that's about 40% of, um, of mortgages statewide. So there are a lot of folks that, that already have some sort of energy code, but there are also a lot of folks, Matsu in particular, which is a high growth area that, where there's no energy code at all. Um, this chart just shows uh, 2008 residential customer average annual usage by service year. And to sort of demonstrate that after BEES was initiated, that's the building energy efficiency standard um, used by the Alaska Housing Finance Corporation, trying really hard not to use acronyms. Um, When BEES was initiated in 1992, it kind of um, created market pressure to, to build higher quality houses. Um, in terms of residential, the recommendation was to sustainably fund the home energy rebate and the weatherization programs. weatherization program has been around in Alaska for a really long time, just at a sort of a much smaller um, scaled back level. Um, and I think that the general consensus in the room that day was that, that those programs are really effective and they, that, um, that we're seeing like on the ground you know feedback that that it's working you know we're seeing an average of 33 percent reductions in um, home heating costs for houses that have participated in the home energy rebate program and probably even more for some of the houses that participate in the weatherization program. Um, the current funding can serve 34,000 homes which is about 12 percent of all of the homes in Alaska. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity out there I mean there for for continued growth, I mean, obviously, not all of those 280,000 homes need to participate in these programs, but probably a, a significant chunk could benefit from them. Um, all program funds are for the home energy rebate program are current are currently fully encumbered. The program continues to operate, but um, but all of the funds are currently encumbered, and. CCHRC sort of estimates that a sustainable funding level would be uh, $125 million per year, and they estimate that within 15 years, you would be able to, at that level, you would be able to serve kind of all of the homes that might benefit from those programs. Um, The policy recommendation regarding education, training, and outreach, just a little bit more detail, and I feel like a lot of this is, is kind of general information, so I'm not gonna go into it too much, but just to fund schools and universities, provide education, research, and training to advance our understanding of energy efficiency and conservation as a resource. I you know the Alaska Center for ACEP, the Alaska Center for Energy and Power is doing work on curriculum development, and there are, and the Alaska Energy Authority has the Energy Efficiency Partnership. Um, so. There are a lot of good initiatives out there in terms of public education and outreach that are beginning to get traction. It's worth noting, though, that in, uh, in states that have mature energy efficiency and conservation programs, where they see really significant savings, um, uh, they spend a lot of money. And about 25% of what they spend is on, is on marketing. I mean, these this sort of, the behavior change side of this, and um, cost fair, it, you know, it costs money to convince people to do things convince the public to do things. Um, Utility-based end-use efficiency. This is a recommendation to um, empower the, our, the Regulatory Commission of Alaska to work through slash with the utilities to develop programs for end-users. Um, current electric end-use programs in Alaska are extremely limited, um, and utilities appear to be reluctant to invest resources into energy efficiency. Not all utilities. Um, but, but sort of generally speaking, there, there's a pretty low level of investment in energy efficiency and conservation programs throughout Alaska. Um, it's, it's not, it does not appear that utilities are going to take the step of investing adequate resources in energy efficiency and conservation without somebody making them do it. And it doesn't appear that the RCA is going to make them do it unless the legislature makes them do it. So. You all are voters. <laughs> um, oh, did I skip one? So, next one, just following up on that, is to legislate efficiency. Obviously, these two are sort of related. Um, funding, but the other side of that is to kind of connect funding streams for supply side systems, for generation systems, to um, demand side reductions, to require that energy efficiency be done prior to the sizing and building of new generation systems. And um, just to consider energy efficiency part of the energy portfolio, um, the resource is enormous, and it should it should be considered it should be considered as part of that portfolio. Um, and this is just a graph that the Coal Climate Housing Research Center put together that kind of demonstrates a, a peak at the potential of um, of energy efficiency as a resource. I know there was another presentation about energy efficiency as a resource, and I missed it. Hope I hopefully. There was good information in there. This is just based on um, savings associated with the um, with the home energy rebate program. And if we were to continue to invest at 125 million dollars per year, we could look at potential savings of 26 trillion BTUs annually, which is sort of at today's dollars um, more than 400 million dollars to the homeowner. So. And obviously, some of those—a lot of this is heating, but some of it is electric—and some of those benefits then get shared with the state. And certainly, the benefits of having to subsidize the building of massive um, new supply-side generation is um, is a benefit directly to the state. So, in conclusion, uh, it's imperative that we use our present wealth, and, and we have a, we have a fair amount of it in the bank at this with the state to develop an economy that is much less reliant on fossil fuels um, to assure a healthy and sustainable future. One of the most cost-effective resources we have is energy efficiency and conservation um, and the sustained energy and cost savings to businesses and homeowners from energy efficiency will result in reinvestment in Alaska's economy and stimulation of substantial economic growth. Um, The bottom line is that sustained investment, sustained over time in energy efficiency, will foster a more sustainable and vibrant economy. These are our websites. So are you gonna introduce the next speaker? Excellent, because I just met Sandra last
0: Thank you very much, Katie. And just to confirm on that last graphic, you you said $400 million of of energy, but that's per year, right? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be $400 million per year when we get to that point. Okay, thanks a lot, Katie. Uh, Our next presenter is Sandra Muller from the Alaska Energy Authority, and she'll be talking to us about regional energy planning.
2: I might need help on this here. Oh, no, maybe not. Right. Well, good morning. I'd like to see who's out there, uh, who I'm speaking with, because right in the bright lights here. Again, my name is Sandra Moeller, recently uh, the Deputy Director of uh, Rural Energy at the Alaska Energy Authority. And um, I took the job uh, for many reasons, but primarily because my personal interests are directly related to energy and therefore also economic development. So I found in my career I've uh, either dabbled or delved into uh, either both or uh, one of those topics. So that the Energy Authority was a great organization to start um, looking at the energy side of things. I also have to confess that diesel is one of my favorite smells in the world, even <laughs> higher than bacon. So um, I am an engineer, so judge me as you will. And I too am gonna try to learn how to do PowerPoint better in my next life. It's good I got you to laugh right off that. It's always good to get that out of the way. I also have about eight slides and I have 15 minutes, so that's about two minutes per slide. So we'll be looking at this picture for a couple minutes. Um, Also, just kidding. Uh, My task today was to talk about regional energy planning. And um, I've, again, been at the Energy Authority about three months, and so when I was tasked with looking at this, I, you know, my first question, of course, what is regional planning? And I believe there's several hundred people here, and probably there'll be 200 people, that are 200 different types of ideas what regional planning is. So I went to the most reliable source on Earth called Wikipedia, and this is what it says it is. Now, um, it deals with the efficient placement of land use activities, infrastructure, and settlement uh, across a large area of land than an individual city or town. So that sounds all great. You replace uh, land, uh, uh, area of land, um, with energy, and that's what you're looking at. Um, let's see here. Fortunately, the state has uh, done a lot of effort in looking at the energy across the state. Here's a list of some of the publications and efforts that we've gone to date, most recently the Alaska Energy Pathway, in which a lot of the conclusion was to look at regional planning next. Um, So what do you do as an engineer? You create a map and look at the different regions. We have um, 12 regions, of course, in our state. We've used the uh, energy boundaries uh, loosely covering what the uh, regional ANCSA corporations are. So each of these, it also shows the PCE eligible communities. Fortunately, at this seminar we have 10 of the 12 regions represented um, here with us. I've I've had an opportunity to meet several of those. We have, um, I'll go over some of the planning efforts that we are working on uh, and working with through a contract and grant process. So this gives an idea, obviously everybody knows that it's a vast state, very very diverse. One of the other plans that we've created is the uh, Renewable Energy Atlas. And uh, that, if if anybody hasn't had a chance to look at that, please stop by our booth and and pick that up because it basically takes each of these regions and gives you an idea of what type of resource is available in each of your particular regions. I think that's important because you 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 obviously have a lot of hydro in southeast. Um, You don't have as much maybe on the west coast. So spending time in your planning to look at hydro in a place that may not have hydro is not really a very worthwhile effort. So, the state has created a regional planning effort, which I am in charge of and starting to develop. And the goal of regional planning is outlined here. We'd like to uh, have, at the end of the planning, have a recommendation for specific activities that will lead to long-term reduced costs in the following areas, the power, electric, you know, electric power that's provided in the communities, as well as the heating, uh, space heating, and transportation. I think sometimes that gets overlooked at just looking at the electric utility part of it, but there are many different energy uh, users out, out in their uh, region. Again, the recommendations of this plan should be very concrete, uh, implementable, and feasible. And also, we also want to have reliable um, system, uh, energy systems that are very reliable that we can count on um, uh, over and over. Another part of the regional planning effort that we're doing is a um, complete just a complete evaluation of the rank uh, and to rank the energy systems that are um, out in all of the regions. So we're we'll going to be doing an RFP out here shortly to look at um, all the different power systems and get the data and be able to uh, build upon that. Now in order to, uh, the state does have funds available to help and assist the communities and the regions with. Um, uh, planning on the regional regional planning effort for their energy uses. Um, What we're looking at for eligibility is going to be creating a stakeholder group. Um, We want to make sure that we have uh, fair and appropriate representation for all the uh, community members within that region. That includes the utility, obviously, local and tribal governments, regional and village corporations, our nonprofit associations as well. Um, housing authority. We're also looking at maybe the CDQ groups and Chamber of Commerce, other entities that have a stake in reliable energy. Again, that kind of gets back into the economic um, side of things. If you have good reliable energy, you can uh, probably get some good economic activity going on. Now, components of a regional plan. This is the fun stuff. This is the meat of it, and it is one slide. Um, But basically, it is a plan, and I've heard a lot of people say, well, we don't need another plan. You know, this is a different kind of plan. We're going to have it be actionable um, and have specifics and hopefully over a three-year period that we can be able to use it from uh, funding sources, go and look at priorities in a community, in a region, so that we can make some progress and um, really have some good meaningful impacts in the communities. So the outline is we we want to make sure we have preliminary planning and get stakeholder involvement. Now, this process could take two to two and a half years. You know, just depending on the region, you've got to travel to to your communities and such. So, we need a lot of um, effort of getting input from the stakeholders, but we also want to have a deliverable that will identify the key issues in a region. Um, we also want to know if there's data gaps that we need to look at and put some more effort into, and we want to know the methodology to look at creating the plan. So you can get a lot of information, but what we want to really are striving towards is getting a good priority list for the communities and so that we can get the funding appropriated um, um, across all the regions. Again, resource data and inventory. We're working with one region. They had, I think, 38 um, reports in their uh, in their region of just energy issues back to 1975. So there's a lot of information out there. You know, the key in what we're hoping to get with the regional plans is to really look at getting actionable steps and really good concrete projects. Uh, They might not be. Um, large hydro projects that you take pictures and put a plaque with the mayor's name on it. It might be energy efficiency items. It might be ways to look at heat and uh, transportation as well as the electrical uh, part of the energy in different ways. So we're really hoping to have some creativity in that part of the discussion. Um, And then we're going to develop a plan. Again, it's going to be very, um, I'm noted for saying scope, schedule, and budget, and that's what we're going to look for for each of these plans that we have, that we want to make sure it's definable scope. Uh, We do it within a reasonable time and that we, you know, put appropriate uh, funding levels. Part of this plan is going to rely on having a um, comprehensive uh, budgeting process to make sure that we have a a phased approach to getting the energy projects uh, completed. We have several entities, uh, several different parts of uh, regions of the state that have started their energy planning. Of course, the Southeast IRP is in process. You've heard some of that already. The rail belt also has IRP, and that's also being funded through this planning effort from the state. We have recently signed a, a gr- MOA with Chalista Region, which is this new Vista Light and Power, and we have an actual grant with that entity, and they are um, underway, and we've got good progress. I think our first uh, community meeting is in October in Bethel. Um, we're also talking with Bering Straits, The Bristol Bay Region and Doyon has already started their their plan, Um, NANA Regional Plan, Northwest Arctic Borough, and we're trying to get that to be similar to what we're looking at with uh, the other uh, agreements that we have in place. Um, The Allied Corporation has formed a regional team, and other other, uh, organizations are at various stages. And again, I also mentioned we've uh, started the inventory and ranking of all of our um, power systems out in the state. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Sandra. Uh, Our last speaker is Sarah fisher Goad. She'll be talking about power cost equalization. And then again, we'll have questions at the end of her presentation. Sandra. Sarah.
3: I don't have a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm very happy about that, actually. Um, I did want to talk. about PCE on a on a on really on a policy basis, um, rather than um, you know this is not a PCE 101 um, course or information with respect to how you calculate PCE. We have uh, plenty of folks here that can uh, help you out if you want to know a little bit more information about the uh, program. But what I did want to talk um, about really is um, having a more on a PCE 201 level on talking about how PCE fits into the um, development, and a component of energy policy. Um, real briefly, PCE was established in 1985 uh, to provide economic assistance to rural communities uh, with high energy costs, and it was established at a time that the state was investing in hydro projects throughout the state, and some of these communities and uh, smaller communities wouldn't have the economies of scale to be able to develop um, larger projects. So. PCE was established as an investment um, into helping reduce the cost of energy. Uh, This was an alternative to um, large projects that just um, perhaps didn't make sense in smaller communities. Uh, So the goals of this program are to provide electrical rates in rural Alaska comparable to urban Alaska. And the core policy is to support the viability of centralized power in rural Alaska. Um, And that's very important. Centralized power is important in these smaller communities. Um, And we've heard uh, conversations earlier today uh, with respect to if a large load center decides to self-generate, it's a very uh, very difficult um, situation where you have less kilowatt hours to spread amongst uh, already small communities. So the centralized power is quite important and PCE helps um, support that effort. Uh, the uh, the other thing is the reliable low cost energy enhances a community's quality of life, standard of living, and economic viability. Um, and this program has been amended throughout the years. Um, it hasn't remained stagnant since it was developed. Um, there was a blue ribbon commission in 1999 that actually had uh, put in place or put the start of several changes to the to the program. Um, one of the recommendations that was followed through with with the the changes in the program included that commercial customers were removed as an eligible um, um, eligible entities for the program and the eligible kilowatt hours were reduced to 500 kilowatt hours per month per residential customer um, down from 750 kilowatt hours the the endowment was also established and i'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute um, the f- and then more recently, in 2008, which was of course a high, a very high cost um, energy year, there were significant uh, changes in in policy, as Katie Katie had mentioned um, earlier. Um, the formula was changed at that time to allow for maximum eligible cost to for the, the ceiling of the program to be ch- raised to one dollar per kilowatt hour, rather than I believe prior to that it was fifty two and a half cents. And as diesel prices were going up, there are a lot of communities that were reaching a situation where the uh, maximum PCE level was um, really inadequate to make any um, any reductions in costs, and um, really the cost in communities was skyrocketing. Um, the other thing that the legislature has done through the last few years, um, and administratively, is make it made it much more easy for the for the Alaska Energy Authority to manage the program is the funding level has been established at 100 percent. There's a provision in statute that if we're not provided sufficient funds to um, pay the PCE grants at 100 percent, we're supposed to prorate the program. And we went through several years of doing that, and administratively it's very difficult to do that, uh, mainly because it's a reimbursement basis program. We'd have to do a lot of projections going up front. It was difficult for us. It was difficult for the RCA, and extremely difficult for uh, the residential customers in the communities that were trying to to implement this program. So, uh, through the last few years, this um, concept of having to prorate the program has essentially um, been taken off the table. It's still a potential to happen, but I think that's one issue with the with the policy direction and the investment that the state has taken into Um, energy programs. um, This is one thing that I think has been um, uh, very helpful for all involved with the program. There have been significant appropriations to the endowment. There was a 100 million dollar initial investment in the PC endowment with approximately 80 million dollars from the Fordham Pool sale that went into the endowment. Um, Another 180 million dollars went into the fund in 2006. And most recently, $400 million was was uh, placed into the PC endowment in 2011. Um, I should recognize Senator Hoffman's in the room, uh, He's uh, was a uh, primary um, supporter of making sure that this program is funded to the level that it is. Um, I think it's, it's a, a lot of dedication with respect to uh, the efforts that the legislature has and the support of the administration that this program is a Fundamental program that's necessary for um, really rural energy um, programs and policy. the The current summary of the program, right now, the the program provides a re- reimbursement to approximately 30% of the kilowatt hours sold in eligible communities. Um, the average monthly eligible kilowatt hours is 280 85 kilowatt hours per month. Um, I think it's important to recognize that. You know, there's a lot of concern when you have this type of program that if the state is um, providing this type of rate relief, uh, people have a tendency not to uh, perhaps um, conserve or um, exercise energy efficiency measures. But I think this this average monthly eligible kilowatt hours that's that's being reimbursed is pretty important because I think it does recognize that even with an eligibility of 500 kilowatt hours, the uh, residents and the Um, beneficiaries of this program are still conserving. We're not seeing everybody try and take advantage of the program at 500 kilowatt hours. So I think it is really important to recognize that even with PCE there is a higher cost um, in these eligible communities for just basic um, uh, electrical energy needs. So the total cost of the program are approximately 35 million dollars a year and the average PCE rate for uh, utilities uh, is about 24 and a, high, 24 and a half cents um, per kilowatt hour sold. Right now, the endowment assets are valued at $720 million. That's um, as of August 31st. That, of course, uh, will fluctuate. Um, that fund is um, invested in, in equities. So uh, when you think about what your retirement fund looks like, um, if you if, if it looks good one month, um, probably means the PCE program is looking pretty good, and if it's not looking so good, probably means the PCE program has lost some value too. Um, <clears throat> the way the endowment pays out, though, it is a three-year monthly average market value of the program, so it does it is set up to as, to provide a, uh, a a bit more of a long-term perspective on funds available, where <clears throat> monthly changes in the the value should um, levelize and equal out over time. <clears throat> the, as I mentioned before in the Blue, blue Ribbon Commission in 1999, it, it was really kind of established that there was no immediate direct rate relief um, that could be a viable alternative to PCE. So although at the time I think there, there was a significant discussion on how to adjust the program to reduce the cost, it was immediately recognized, though, that there are no real alternatives to provide the value to ratepayers in rural Alaska that PC does provide. (coughs) Um, They used a term in the Blue Ribbon Commission that I think is pretty important. It's that the program should provide a lifeline rate to a limited number of kilowatt hours per month. And I think that's what the program, I think the program is intended to do that, and I think that's what it does do, is it (coughs) provides a minimum number of kilowatt hours per month um, that's available um, to communities um, and and the and the residents, and it's it's really a a, a minimum amount for the program. Uh, um, and community facilities and residential customers should be only customers. And <clears throat> there's been a lot of discussion over the years with respect to whether commercial um, commercial customers should be considered eligible. Again, that would take a statutory change to make that happen. I think there, there, again, there has been discussions about that. Um, there would be, of course, additional cost to the program. I think with respect to the, um, the other policies and program changes that the state of Alaska has um, implemented and the legislature has provided, I think it's important to recognize that <clears throat> when we talk about projects that can, can be built, you're affecting all the kilowatt hours that are generated in a um, in a community, rather than just a PCE kilowatt hours, which only again represent about a third of the kilowatt hours in a community. So, how does this policy fit in with the current energy project development? Um, I guess, in in my opinion, I think what PCE does as a provides as a benefit is it really takes this issue somewhat off the table. That one of the basic basic policies that the state of Alaska has for rural energy rural energy policy is that this lifelong support is necessary, and again, the significant investments that have been made uh, really, really, I think, demonstrates that this is an important program, and I think it's been well supported, funded at 100 percent, and then it allows us um, as groups like this um, with the Alaska Energy Authority um, and in the legislative halls to be able to concentrate on other programs such as the Renewable Energy Fund, the Emerging Energy Technology Fund, Um, and other programs and issues. So it also, again, allows us to concentrate on, you know, these other kilowatt hours that are sold in rural Alaska that are not eligible for PCE. Um, So the the state truly is committed to this multi-program strategy to reduce energy costs in the state, and it's been willing to make investments in projects and programs that that make sense. the one thing that I want to raise maybe as a policy issue or, or a discussion that taking PCE off the table shouldn't really reduce the focus on PCE where this program is, is taken, taken for granted. I think it's always important to you know, keep an eye on what the, um, what the endowment um, is earning. Is it, is it earning enough funds to sustain the, the program however the statutes are or may change? Um, is, it, is it supporting the program as intended? So it's important to kind of keep track of that. And it's also important to recognize that although this program is established and there's eligible utilities, it's really important for the utilities to make sure that they take advantage of the program. Um, and this goes back to the um, the concept of having centralized power. Uh, you, the, It provides this opportunity for utilities uh, to have a reimbursement, but it also requires them, and ha- they have a responsibility to make sure that they um, they manage manage the uh, the utility well. Have the folks that are able to provide the monthly paperwork to the Alaska Energy Authority, um, and also have a regular evaluation uh, of their rate structure to the regulatory commission. So it, it's important to to uh, you know make sure that although PCE seems to be um, at this point a you know recognized program that is one of the foundations. It still requires, it requires the Alaska Energy Authority to continue to maintain a training program, uh, make sure folks are receiving the, the assistance that they need in order to get the monthly reports in and making sure that the um, RCA is receiving their information so a community or utility is not not suspended. Um, from being being able to get their um, costs reimbursed, so w- participation in, in the program really is is vital in order for a utility to remain uh, viable and provide centralized power at um, I guess at the lowest rate possible. Um, I'm careful not to say it's not it's not buying it's not buying power down to to provide necessarily cheap power, but it's providing uh, funding to provide the um, lowest possible lowest power cost possible. so I, I kind of leave this as you know with the Alaska Energy Authority and thinking about the PCE program, um, just want to make sure that you know and part of part of this discussion was uh, recognizing that PCE um, is a policy we, we talk a lot about program and project development, and we've been uh, certainly emphasizing projects. But um, it is also important for us as a state agency that's responsible for managing the program, um, and for folks that use the program to recognize that this is really a very significant investment that the state has made, um, and it's important for us to kind of keep it um, keep it on the on the front burner occasionally to think about is is the program operating correctly. Um, Are there things that should be made for um, change the program for potential improvement? Um, Are there concerns about the program or are there things that um, maybe it's doing that that it shouldn't be doing? So with that, I look forward to um, either questions that come up or if people have any concerns or comments with respect to the program. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sarah. And if I could get Sandra and Katie to come up here. We have 40 minutes for uh, Q&A discussion, which is excellent. This is really what we wanted to be able to do today, is get as much participation from the audience as possible. So if you want to just raise your hand, we can take the questions and then uh, direct them to the appropriate party here. Yeah, Rich. This isn't so much a question, just kind of an observation. And
4: I know Cordova
5: Not all the their, uh, community members remember that above a certain amount, you're paying a higher rate, and they find that doing that every fall reduces uh, their, their load by 5 to 10 percent. So I, I'd encourage all communities to make sure you get the word out uh, on a frequent basis, because uh, there is a benefit just to uh, re-education. Thank,
0: Thank you. you. The questions? questions? Yes, sir.
5: Uh, hi, my name is Ed Phillips. I own the IC Spray over in Huna. I've owned it for 11 and a half years. It's kind of a general question, and it's also primarily the DCV. I've owned it for 11 and a half years. I expected an inner tie. I bought that in you know, in my plan. Our electric has now gone up to 67 cents a kilowatt in Huna. It's wiping. It's, it's wiping. Small. Businesses we can't afford it in these small diesel-electric communities. The businesses provide employment. The businesses provide services, yet they are being wiped out by the electric rates. Um, back in 1990 to 1999, the average oil price was 17 to 17 and a half dollars 5 a barrel. In 1999, it went down to 12 and 5 dollars. And so the legislature rightfully in crisis said, okay, commercial businesses have to lose PCE. In 2000, they eliminated it. That's when I bought the lodge too. I didn't realize they were eliminating it. But what I'm trying to get at is they were in a crisis. Now it averages at $80 a barrel. The, the state is awash in money. The rural communities are being wiped out. The quality of life is being wiped out because who can afford to run a business there? Who can afford employees when the electric rate is so high? What I ask is please, policymakers, people, understand when Juneau had its energy crisis because of the the power lines, they went completely berserk at 40 cents. We're at 67. And there's no, no hope of any end. And I'll add power cost equalization was supposed to be temporary. Where's our solution?
0: Thank you. Are there any um, comments from the panel on, on that?
3: It's, I'll just comment, I guess, with, with respect to the, uh, the concern. I think, um, uh, again, I had mentioned the concept of commercial facilities uh, being eligible for the program has come up again, um, and I think it's it's one thing that if if it is um, is addressed, there's a few things to consider uh, with respect to uh, what the what the uh, assistance looked like prior to '99. I um, commercial customers were established at the same kilowatt hour um, ceiling or uh, maximum allowable reimbursement. As a residential customer, and so I think um, it, it, it's uh, something to consider that if if there is um, i guess relief for for commercial customers, um, we would have to look at uh, you know what what it should look like if there was some type of relief like that, and would it make would it make a difference at the way it was before and I think um, it's real difficult for um, it it, it may be real difficult to justify having that additional expense at the same, the same way that it was prior to 2000. Um, and it, it is something though that continues to come up and we are occasionally asked to look at uh, what the impact of the program costs would be. Um, it is always kind of a moving target. Um, I think one of the issues is could it spur economic development um, or how how it could be done I, I just um, I, I appreciate your comments I, I think one of the issues with respect to developing projects and you know the energy efficiency and the planning is to really look at projects that can again impact the rest of the uh, kilowatt hours that are sold in a community um, beyond the third that are impacted by the Pce program
0: he has just a quick follow-up
5: um, you know, you mentioned that you eliminated the uh, the fluctuations. You know, the, the, the having to use a bunch of math to figure out what all these gyrations were. Well, can you imagine what it's like for me? I went from three thousand seven hundred to five thousand dollars a month just in July. And so, how for me to plan? For me, I got a plan for the increase. I got no control over. So I can appreciate you not wanting to have adjustment factors in there, but for the businesses, why would you ever invest when there is such a volatility? How could you ever boost employment? Maybe yeah, I could yeah, just
0: yeah. ask a real quick follow-up. Uh, one of the, the things this gentleman said at the end is, what is the solution? And I know the Alaska Energy Pathways looked at the different resources that all these different communities around the state have. Energy efficiency recommendations are trying to reduce the number of kilowatt hours. Of course, that doesn't affect necessarily um, heat, although there's a lot of recommendations for retrofitting homes and there's a lot of programs for doing that. Is there something that, along the lines, uh, are, are, are there ways to incorporate and in, for instance, in the regional planning and in PCE future considerations, actually getting these solutions in place and then that uh, reducing the amount of PCE that might go to a community that gets some of those, that solution money? For instance, if a community actually reduced a, a large amount of its load through energy efficiency and or got a renewable energy project that displaced the need for diesel, would there be a way to start actually calling that a solution
3: and, and shifting the program around? I think, well, the the one thing, the way the PCE program works, um, it, Cordova has actually shifted quite a bit to hydro, but they're still eligible for um, PCE. There's um, uh, a debt service component that sometimes replaces a fuel cost that um, keeps uh, costs um, higher to the point where a community is still eligible. So. Um, as far as shifting that, there would need to be again, you know, legislation to adjust that. Um, but the one thing, I guess, with respect to the commercial, I should mention is the commercial energy audit program was something that the Alaska Energy Authority has uh, established as a demonstration project with some ERA funds, um, a couple, well, over a year and a half ago. And Sean Scaling, who is here today, is our energy efficiency expert, and we are looking at um, these commercial audits and then also financing, uh, uh, low-cost financing for commercial facilities and commercial business owners to do some retrofits to their facilities that could help reduce the heating costs um, and their their energy costs.
0: Okay, thank you. Next question. Right here, Bill.
6: Would you discuss two things, please? One, even if we displace all diesel fuel, we're not necessarily going to make the cost of electricity. In. the the community, the small community, uh, less expensive. We think we probably will, but we're not going to drive it down to 10 cents a kilowatt hour in many of these communities. And secondly, we tend to equate renewable source energy with electricity because wind generators and tidal generators make electricity, but that's only a fraction of the community's energy budget, so we also need to make renewable source fuel for storage, for heating, for running those transportation pieces of equipment that we also have as part of our community lives. So could you just talk about those two aspects, please?
1: You've so, so, so Bill, a, yeah.
0: Yeah. A bit. Yeah, Bill, if I, if I um, understand the question, you're, you're asking for a little bit more development on the issues of uh, transportation and, and heating, is that right? Particularly,
6: first, be sure we understand that even if we drive all diesel out of our communities generating systems, we're not necessarily going to reduce the cost of electricity in those communities. We probably will, but we're not going to drive it down to 10 cents kilowatt hour. Is there consensus among... You on that, and then secondly, talk about parts of the energy uh, economy in these communities other than electricity.
1: So I, I'll take it for a first stab at it. I don't I don't know if there's consensus because we didn't discuss it beforehand. But I think that generally speaking, um, folks recognize that uh, renewable energy generation projects um, have some pretty substantial upfront costs, and so the kilowatt hour costs are not necessarily reduced. Um, and I think that you, you make a really good point about, um, about the other energy uses in rural communities. I think um, a lot of the work that I've done has found that most people consider them substantially more significant than electricity. Um, electricity is something that we talk about a lot because there's sort of a lot of government stuff around it and a lot of policy around it, um, but home heating costs are um, are a much larger portion of the of sort of the household cost for, for most households, and particularly in in rural places. And transportation costs are are also um, are also really significant. There's um, there's not a lot of activity that I know about in the state right now beyond some sort of. Uh, clever engineering students doing competitions with each other and trying to, f- trying to um, crack the nut on getting an efficient snowmobile to go more than 20 miles. But beyond that I'm not really sure that there's a whole lot going on with transportation. You guys might know more than I do. Um,
0: well yeah, maybe Sandra you could add a little bit on the heating and transportation because I know that's going to be part of your regional plans is to incorporate the look at those two significant sources of energy in the community. I agree. <laughs>
2: no, I mean, the, like I mentioned, the, you have to look at a community from a holistic point of view and look at all the energy because um, a, a person in the community is, has only so many dollars coming in. So where they can save is across all energy fronts. Um, getting, getting in and out of the community obviously is important. I don't know that the energy authority has much involvement necessarily in the, the prices that the uh, air carriers charge. The uh, delivery, of any kind of fuel product is greatly um, dependent on the transportation. That's the single largest component of getting um, any kind of energy into um, into a community. And, and we have a very vast state. Um, the housing side of it, the energy, the heat heat source, uh, space heating is also very critical. I think a big part we should be looking at in all the regions is energy efficiency. The old adage of uh, the cheapest kilowatt is the one you don't use. So I think. Uh, not only are we going to be looking at large projects of renewable energies to offset some of these costs, but we have to look at you know, every penny and every kilowatt that we can save so that that will reduce the cost um, throughout the region.
0: Thanks. I think Senator Hoffman had a question. And I also want to recognize Senator Hoffman It's not only a, a big champion of PCE, but also of all the renewable energy and energy efficiency programs we Thank talked you. about earlier today.
7: Well, this may be a- unfair question to uh, Sarah fisher Goad, but um,
0: heating, heating costs in rural Alaska are uh, the big gorilla in rural Alaska. And I know that we are going forward with regional plans and we've made major strides with uh, energy efficiency and uh, now we have made uh, monumental movements in power cost equalization. The governor has uh, supported the Susitna project and also has uh, made uh, the gas line an issue to address energy costs in the rail belt. What can rural Alaskans um, expect
4: in support to address the high heating costs in rural areas of the state of Alaska? Uh, th-
3: thank you, Senator. I think uh, the uh, w- the one thing, and especially since you sit on the the um, the RFAC committee, I know through the Renewable Energy Fund program, uh, we have the ability to look at uh, uh, heating heating projects. Uh, biomass is actually a very very viable place with respect to developing uh, the heating aspect. I think um, the I think home heating. Issues in rural Alaska and some areas in the in the railroad, I think Fairbanks shares this um, uh, shares shares this issue is, um, you're and I think you've 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 said it um, before is that we have kind of had a pretty good handle on the electricity and the heating. The heating aspect is a very tough one to get to to get a hold of. It's uh, it's not a centralized uh, it's not a centralized system in in rural Alaska and even in um, in Fairbanks area. Um, I think the support that we can have is uh, as uh, what's been discussed is I think continued, continued support on the energy efficiency um, efforts and the home rebate program and the weatherization programs. It's one of the more most significant ways to reduce heating costs. Um, I think where uh, pellet uh, development can be supported and uh, some potential district heating programs I think are all all things that AEA is interested in pursuing and looking at how how we can help make a difference with um, heating costs for both homes and um, commercial and um, community facilities. So it's um it is though a very difficult um I, I think even developing the pathway I remember um Steve Haginson my predecessor had um there is always a real difficult um time on getting a handle on how on the fuel that goes into a community with respect to um those the, those heating costs. I know you know they are significant. Uh we're very interested in looking at different ways that it can be uh can be supported, uh, AHFC again with the phenomenal effort with the rebate rebate program. I think has made tremendous strides. So I think there's parts in place. I think um, continued funding and support of those programs are important. And I I think um, it would be difficult. You're, you're not going to see the situation in Southeast Alaska uh, that that you're seeing in Southeast Alaska where folks are changing to. Electric heat, which is causing its own problems, um, that doesn't work in a lot of the rural and the um, Arctic places, um, primarily because the the um, the heating days are um, too expensive, and it could be a very um, very costly to convert to electricity. But you know we are um, looking at. Um, ways to make sure that we can make some type of impact and effort on reducing those um, heating costs beyond looking at electricity. Um, again, the Renewable Energy Fund program is available for that. Um, it's just, um, again, a bit more of a difficult way to to do that because a lot of homes are not in an, any type of a centralized heating system.
4: Mike. Yes, uh, Mike Kraft, the Delta Wind Farm. I'd like to talk for a second about something that was said earlier about we're not going to be able to drive the cost of electricity down with renewable energy. And I think there's some confusion there because the whole issue is, this gentleman hit on it, where his electric bill jumped almost 40 percent in a short period of time. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a function of inflation. And if we talk about the fact that we can drive diesel out of these communities, one of the reasons that diesel has become an issue for us is because it's not reliable from a price perspective. And so, if we're budgeting ourselves for the next year of how much we're going to spend on electricity or whatever, and all of a sudden there's a war on the other side of the planet or something happens with an oil spill or something that is totally out of our control that drives the cost of diesel up or doubles it overnight or in a short period of time, I think what you have to realize is renewable energy represents an opportunity to get rid of that issue. We can cut out the inflation of, of electricity and stabilize the rate over a longer period of time and I think, the idea of, of creating cheaper electricity from a perspective of dropping the price of it from what it is today is foolish. The cheaper electricity is a function of establishing a rate today and watching that rate stay there for the next 20 years. That's cheaper power. And that's what I think renewable energy represents as a, uh, an opportunity for us to stabilize the rates so that we can plan for the future.
0: I think that's a good point. For instance, right now with the Fire Island Wind Farm, uh, that RCA is discussing as we speak at a hearing whether or not to approve a contract between uh, Chugach Electric and Siri at 9.7 cents per kilowatt hour over 25 years with no change over 25 years. Clearly, that's a stable price. And the whole idea is that over time, while, while that remains the same, these other prices that include fuel are going to go up. And so I think that's a really good point, Mike. Yeah, Can I right look? over here. Oh, yeah, Katie.
1: If I could just add on to that, um, and I and I had look, I had written down stability and underlined it, and I didn't say it out loud. So I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. I do think it's a it is an important um, point to make, though, even if most of the people in this room recognize that um, renewable renewable resources might not lead to a lower per kilowatt hour cost than the one we're paying right now, I think that there is a perception in a lot of places in Alaska that that is the case. And so it's important that we communicate that, that um, that it creates, it eliminates volatility and creates stability and security, but it might not actually lead to $0.10 cent per kilowatt hour and attract industry and sort of all of these other things that you do get, There, are, there's widespread perception throughout in the state that that is, um, is possible.
0: Ginny, um, I
8: have a question.
3: Is this on? Yes.
1: yes. Um, related to going back to the
8: commercial facilities being taken off of PCE, and I'm wondering if, in the interluding time, if anybody has looked at um, how many businesses in rural Alaska maybe have gone out of business. And since you have high fixed costs um, for the utilities and only a certain customer base, if we've really all we've really done is shift those costs to the resi- residential customers. And PCE hasn't really gone down per community anyway, and what we've done is maybe make businesses less potentially viable. Has anybody researched that, and maybe we would actually um, save money by making commercial facilities um, actually eligible again?
3: I, I don't think anybody has made that adjustment. I was actually I see Mira, Mira's going to be able to provide provide some information um, uh, with respect to that. I think she can. Uh, help at least give AVEC's perspective on what they've seen with commercial facilities.
8: And uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, w- what we do is we we actually track our energy sales uh, on a, a monthly and annual basis, and so we have records going back to the beginning of time, at least at the beginning of AVEC, and uh, we really haven't seen any decline in the ratio of residential to commercial and large power. In fact, we've seen that the commercial and the large power sales have continued to increase at a faster pace uh, than residential. Now, that doesn't necessarily reflect businesses that have come and gone. Uh, so we, we don't have any way to track that. But, you know, we do have the number of customers and the sales uh, per customer. And that has not uh, materially changed. Now, remember, even when PCE did apply to commercial users, it was at the same level. So it was at 700 kilowatt hours a month, and then it was at 500 kilowatt hours a month. When the commercial users were dropped off the program, the program overall cost uh, went down by 40%. So that gives you a picture of what the cost might increase by if we were to add back uh, the commercial customers. But for somebody like the gentleman in Huna, whose electric bills are running $5,700 a month, uh, that tells me that he's using 10,000 kilowatt hours a month. So 500 kilowatt hours is not going to make a significant impact on on that particular account. Um, the commercial customer uh, parameters uh, are fairly clear, but a small commercial enterprise in a person's home does not make that person ineligible for PCE. So for example, if you have a little B&B or, or a crafts uh, shop or something like that in your home, that home is still eligible for that 500 kilowatt hours
0: of PCE. Thank you, Mara. Yes, sir, way in the back there. Um, Along the lines of what Mike was saying, uh, you mentioned the emerging Energy Technology Fund. I was wondering, uh, are there any changes being made in the regulations
6: considering that, and um, how soon will those those funds be made available?
3: Sarah, you want to tackle that? Sure, the, uh, the regulations there, um, we've gone through a public comment period and that, that work is being uh, finalized. Um, the regulations uh, should be f- finalized in, within the next uh, couple of months. Uh, we'll have to resolicit for Emerging Energy Technology Fund applications. And I think um, s- shortly after the first of the year, I think the expectation is that, that those funds would be available in the form of grants.
7: Thank you. Excuse me. Um, good morning. Um, I'm actually in the same utility as the gentleman from Huna, I'm the mayor for the city of Angoon. We're, uh, my concern is with the IRP committee and what they, they seem to be pushing the biomass. Um, when, you, when we did the research into the biomass, what we're learning is, is none of the pellets are made here in Alaska. So what we're doing is we're going to trade buying oil from somewhere else to buying wood pellets from somewhere else. When we have renewable energy in our backyard, why not take our resource, connect the inner tie, and start taking our resource and selling it south and bringing revenue into the state of Alaska instead of sending our money out that's running out because we won't be able to pull any more oil out of the ground at some point We've got to fix the problem. I mean, I've heard something that sticks in my mind. You fix a, a, a leaky roof when it's sunshining. Well, by golly, it's sunshining in Alaska because we're full of money. But in the rural communities, it's always raining. Always. This is what I've learned in the three years I've been doing this job. We don't have the votes in my community they look at. Oh, you, you have 100 people that show up to the polls every day. I need to get back and do my job. So I'm going to give the money to the people that vote for me. In our community, we have nothing to lose. You take everything away, pretty soon we have nothing to lose and we're going to start doing things different. I. I Your mayor addressed this last year and the answer he got was I don't want to subsidize another program, I want to fix the problem. He asked about the business PCE. That was I like that answer. And this is what the business PCEs does in our community. We're eighty percent unemployment. So you're You've got families there that, that are fishing like crazy to put their, their food away for the winter. When you don't have business PCEs, you can't pass the savings on to the store where we've got a shop. So the store's got to recover their cost of electricity to keep the refrigerators on, to keep the freezers on, so we have our produce that's fresh and our, and our meat that's frozen. They have to do that, so we have it. Well, since you're not giving them PCEs, they have to get the return on their money somewhere, so it comes out of our pocket. Well, when you have 80% unemployment, not everybody can afford to come to Juneau to buy all their groceries, which, which is, you know, I got a system down to where I come when the permanent fund, comes out, buy all the groceries I need to get me to the summer, but I also hunt and fish and put that away during the summer. This is what's happening out in our communities, and You know, when I started this, I was told this is the way it's always been done. And I finally come to the answer is, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Something has to be done different or something's gonna give. Our state's running out of money. Every day I go to work, that's on my mind.
0: I have a question for you. You mentioned something about the pellet mill, or the, the lack of the pellet mill here. We'd be importing pellets. What if there were pellet mills here in Southeast Alaska taking advantage of the, the resources we've got to use that for heating here in Southeast? Would that, would that be good?
7: That, that was the other thing. We, we're on a national monument, so we can deal with the environmentalists. At some point, they're gonna say, you guys are making this place look terrible by, by cutting down trees and making more pellets. See, we can't use the stumpage that's on our our native corporations' uh, lands because they say it's sat there too long, it's too wet, and it's going to cost too much money to make it.
0: But what if if there were pellet factories, you know, distributed around the southeast, not necessarily in your land, but that could serve you?
7: At some point, they're going to run out of wood. The water's moving here forever. It's been here, it's been running forever. I'm sure my grandfather's probably been running around on these streams that have been, we've got water that could be creating an economy of Southeast Alaska. But it's just running down the hill because the environmentalists won't let us touch it. At some point we've got to say, hey, this, when do the people become important? Yeah, it's nice to look at, but we, we, we live here for a reason. Because of the resources here, we should be allowed to use it. When when do the people become more important than than the scenery we're looking at?
0: Thank you. Hi
3: there. I have a question about the status of the Renewable Energy Fund and what the future might hold.
0: Well, I'll start out by mentioning again that the Renewable Energy Grant Fund uh, was established in 2008 with a 2013 sunset date, June 2013. So I think there's already a move afoot to work toward reauthorizing that because we would have two legislative sessions to do so if we started now. Um, and, and I'll stop there, and maybe Sarah has something to add about that.
3: Well, actually, I think uh, uh, Chris, he's also a member, uh, full disclosure, he's a member of our Renewable Energy Fund Advisory Committee. And, um, uh, I think uh, he's he's right. It's uh, it's uh, received favorable support in the legislature. I've been uh, real happy with uh, the the that AEA has submitted uh, for approval for funding to the legislature. And originally through LBNA, um, they've they've been supported. There hasn't been any um, um, any type of an adjustment with respect to the ranking that AEA has uh, come up with 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 projects. So uh, the project is showing very good favorable results with respect to diesel displacement. And um, I think uh, that there, um, I expect that there will be pretty significant support for the project to, or the program to continue, whether there will be adjustments to the program. We do want to um, have a dialogue and uh, discussion on uh, what's what's right about the program, what can be improved about the program. And just even administratively, I'm always interested in making sure that people are getting the value and the benefit out of the programs that we have been entrusted to manage.
0: Yeah, and I would add that I know AEA has been working hard to put together reports so that we can go back to the legislature and show the progress that these projects are making. And I know it's been frustrating for some people that the money hasn't been coming out quite as quickly as they'd like, but I think it's been prudent to get this money out in in the fashion that's gone. And uh, we are getting more construction projects online now every year that are now showing uh, displacement of diesel, which is the, the primary way that we're really measuring success is the number of gallons of diesel that we can displace every year to stabilize those energy rates. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, yes, sir.
5: Hi, my name is John Creighton uh, from uh, Kenai, Alaska. And uh, I have a question about net metering, which is something I don't understand why. Uh, we do a monthly net metering in Alaska rather than annual net metering. Me that Alaska needs more energy. We use more energy in the winter, we create more energy in the summer, especially when it regards to solar. And we get we get sold back the, or credited the energy that we create at a at a whole market price rather than retail. Well, why, why that I, is I, I, I can, why, I, why I, that is an and, and What can we do to change it?
0: Well, the RCA, Regulatory Commission of Alaska, is who established the net metering rule that we've got here in the state. The legislature did not do that, and in other states, the legislature has created net metering, and as you mentioned, there are different time periods over which you can actually bank the energy that you are getting credit for. And What you're um, uh, making us aware of is that it's monthly here in Alaska, whereas in some states, you'd be able to bank that energy for the whole year. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, a function of what the RCA heard during that. Uh, process uh, but when they made that rule I think it they're probably open um, uh, to to hearing more comments because I don't think that was a very it was a public process but I don't think a lot of people knew about it when it was happening and so I think it's we've got something and certainly we could uh, build on it if if people make the RCA aware they'd like changes anything anyone else want to add on that Uh, okay yes ma'am
8: Um, I had a question related to design standards for new buildings going into the communities. With the regional planning um, and the number one policy recommendation um, being that there is a state energy uh, efficiency code in place, I guess my question is, is with the regional planning, if a new village is going to get a clinic or a school or a sewer system or whatever it might be, is there any um, recommendation? to make sure that those facilities are built to a certain efficiency standard.
0: You wanna tackle that first, Sandra?
2: Since you said regional planning, I guess (laughs) I get that one. Well, again, I think the most efficient um, approach to any type of building facility uh, infrastructure that's put in is, is something that's gonna be encouraged. I don't know that we want to, um, for example, say that a clinic has to be LEED certified or any other type of certified. But definitely, energy efficiency is is going to be paramount to what we need to look at in all the facilities. I know in our power systems we put out, and our our um, tank farms and other facilities that uh, the authority is looking at is we are looking at energy efficiency. The also also looking at waste heat recovery, heat recovery. So there there are things that can be done. I'm not sure a um, energy efficient standard would would be something we would look at, but it's not something we're opposed to.
0: I think it is a good point, though, because right now we've got this $460 million we've invested in home weatherization rebates, and yet in a huge chunk of the of the state we're not requiring new buildings to be built to high energy standards, which means new buildings being built today could come back to the state and ask for Band-Aid money in two years and say, well, we didn't build you know, well enough. We weren't thinking about this two years ago. Same thing with public buildings. We've got a $250 million revolving loan fund now to retrofit public buildings and yet there's no standard that requires a brand new public building in the state today to be energy efficient. So I think that's why it's the number one recommendation um, in, in this uh, cold climate housing research report that's coming out is that new buildings have to have some kind of standard. So that's an excellent point. I think we've just run out of time. Um, I really want to thank all our panelists again for giving us presentations today and all the questions and answers and participation, so thank you.